and welcome to Various Things. I'm Gary Lama. Today is a special episode. It's my 50th episode. It also celebrates 10 years of me doing this podcast. Now, for most podcasts, 50 episodes is literally like 50 days of existence. But it's taken me 3,700-something days to do my 50. My goal with this podcast was to only release when I had something of value. To not just interview anyone I came across, but to put a spotlight on folks I felt had a unique story that I could help share and tell in a useful way. And releasing this way has bit me, for sure. The algorithms don't like five episodes a year or whatever it adds to. But when I look back, I feel like we've been able to share some really great stories with some really great people. And that is drastically important to me. Looking back also highlights the personal development I've done because of this podcast. It's forced me to not exist in so much of an isolated shell. I'm an introvert with a fair amount of anxiety and things being what they are, I tend to keep to myself. So reaching out to folks I respect and asking them to come do my podcast for 50 episodes, it's kind of similar to the feeling and process of asking someone out on a date. There's a value judgment that happens, an evaluation, a fear of rejection, and thinking back, that just sounds horrible, but what a payoff. And in the process, I have learned so many of these people's stories and gotten to make some new friends, as well as having a deeper appreciation for the folks around me. And as a result, it's been one of the most enriching things I've ever been involved in. So today, to celebrate, we are interviewing my friend Dave Brown who we had our first podcast with 10 years ago when I started this. Dave was my first guest because when I looked around the folks in my life, my world, he has consistently been a person that inspires me. And since the time I interviewed Dave, he has gone through some big life changes that took him from being a person that was already so awesome to me to him being in an even better place, both personally and professionally. From changing places in his career to a more rewarding job, to having his fourth son and being able to be in a position to really absorb and experience that. So being able to share that here makes me very happy. Anyhow, 10 years, 50 episodes, and Dave Brown. Let's get into it. So I think the last time I talked to you, you, you had just started working at VCU, right? Or had you been there for a little while? I had been there for a little while because I started in 2005, and I think we talked in 2011. Right. Or 2012. Yes, <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and, and you had gotten into there just kind of doing administrative stuff, right, after, like, years of working at a record store. Yeah, and, and the main reason I got the job at VCU was because I really couldn't afford to work at a record store anymore because I I was the assistant manager of a store that at that point had, like, six or seven stores because they had heavily expanded and, but I was still only making nine eighty five an hour after six years and being the assistant manager and mm-hmm. the insurance policy was terrible there. And this was when I was about to have my second kid in about three months. So I needed to get out of there because I just, I literally could not afford to work there anymore. And the, the discount was great, but discount doesn't pay the electric bill. Like you can't like trade records to dominion power for, to keep your electricity on. So I, just realized I need to kind of take on a job that may not make me the happiest, but will be the most beneficial for everybody. Instead of me just thinking like, I really like wearing shorts and a t-shirt to work every day. I had to just kind of let that go and realize I had a good run with it. At this point I was 
like almost 35 and I had worked in a record store from 89 to 96 and then um, at the record store in Richmond from 99 to 2005. So I had done quite a few years in the record business and it was time to just do something different. And the reason I got the job at VCU um, was because I was basically going to be doing the same thing I'd been doing when I worked briefly at the Department of Defense Education Activity Building in Northern Virginia before moving to Richmond. And it was just scanning like old documentation for um, teachers that were in like foreign countries, like in El Salvador and all these different countries around the world where these were from the 60s. So this was documentation for people um, in the late 90s that were about to retire. So they wanted to make sure that they got like everything that they would, they were that was due to them. They wanted to make sure that, that all that paperwork was in a format they could access online versus on paper. And at VCU, I started working as a documentation specialist, aka a scanner, um, for uh, the accounts payable department. And day one, as the lowest guy in the department, I was making more than the assistant manager at the record store after six years. And the insurance wow. was better. The benefits were better. Everything was better. And not just by like a few pennies, by like a couple dollars. And wow. that's when I just realized, you know what? I can still shop at record stores. Now I have more money in my pocket to do so. And I don't have to hate music like working at a record store will make you eventually do. Because you're just dealing with people that are as obsessed with things as you are, but they're obsessed with very different things. And mm -hmm. it's just very hard to juggle that and still have a good time at work and still want to listen to music when you get home because that's all you do all day. You just deal with people that love music as much as you do and in various like degrees of annoyance sometimes. And I mean that in a complimentary way and that we're all so passionate. Um, but yeah, and at that point, I worked at VCU starting 2005, stayed working at Plan 9 for about another six months, very part time, just one evening a week. And it was because the manager at the time was going to let me keep my employee discount if I still did that um, half a shift. So, right. you know, four hours of work to um, still be able to get 50% off used stuff and 33% off new stuff was awesome. But at a point, I just realized, like, I need to fully step away. Otherwise, I'm never going to step away. Mm -hmm. And so I did. And, you know, and it was great. I mean, I, it was nice to have that little extra little cushion of money from just working that one, you know, half shift every Tuesday. And I use that as kind of like my records, record buying money. Right. Um, and you can buy a lot more money with record buying money. Like when you're still getting that discount, than you can when you're, when you don't and, um, stayed in accounts payable at VCU for 11 years, which was way longer than any of my other jobs, uh, I'd had at that point. And it wasn't because I liked it. It was because I liked the convenience of it. Like, really knowing exactly what I was going to be doing every single day was very right. like relieving for my brain because it like, if you asked me, what are you going to be doing in three Fridays from now? I could tell you because I did the same thing every single day. I had a Monday routine, you know, that was the heavy mail day because that's when the mail came in from the previous Friday that got delivered to the university on Saturday. All it was very much like I was just part of a machine and it was great because I didn't think about work at all. Like I right. literally just, you know, thought about everything but work because it wasn't a thing. I went into the same robotic thing. And then, but after 11 years of that, I realized it was really eating me alive because I wasn't progressing. So I basically mm -hmm. just threw away 11 years of potential learning into a job that was doing nothing but making me really unhappy because the people I worked with, many of them were so 
they had been there, you know, 10, 15, 20, even 30 years. And I was like, you've been doing this for 30 years. Like, and I could tell it had just kind of eaten away at them in a way that I didn't want to have eat away at me. So mm -hmm. I, you know, made the decision, okay, like I've had a good run here. I need to get out of here because my supervisor's driving me absolutely like bonkers. And I'm feeling very underappreciated because I don't complain whenever they give me new work. I just take it on as a new challenge versus some of my coworkers that would have complained about the sky being blue if they could. And, <laughs> you know, it was one of those things where it was like, I also realized that my mood was just really unhappy while I was there. Oh, God, and yeah. yeah. And, and towards the end of my time, there was also when I, you know, went through my divorce, like ended up doing a um, second bankruptcy because I'd done a first one in the late nineties. And like, I just realized like really how I needed a big life change. Otherwise I was just going to be, end up as miserable as some of my coworkers were at 30 years of being there. And that's not what I wanted to be. I wanted to get more out of life than that. So um, I was kind of rebuilding my life at that point too, after my divorce, where I felt like, okay, like if I can get through this, like I can really get through anything. And so I just, you know, started looking and started looking and I just realized I couldn't go back into the private sector because the health insurance I was getting was so cheap. I would have to get such a big raise to offset what I would then have to pay more in um, medical benefits. And so it was a real big juggling act of like, well, I really like working for VCU because I know they're not going to go out of business versus working at a record store that, you know, during the low, low points of record buying, there was times where it's like, am I really going to have a job in six months or not? Um, yeah. And it's seasonal too. I mean, with, you know, like, it seems like, it seems like, uh, you know, with retail, there, there's like seasons and trends and there's definitely that at a school, but it doesn't affect your stability per se, unless it's like, like I know like the 2008, like housing crisis definitely like cut money to VCU, but it, it's, it's a little more, you can kind of plan around like a pretty solid thing. And also you get that vested, like once you're vested, you get all those nice benefits. Exactly. Exactly. And if you change jobs within VCU, your start date still starts at your first start date. And that was really important to me because I was like, I don't want to leave here and then start over at zero again. I think my only really big regret having been there 17 years is that it took me 16 years to actually finally uh, take advantage of the tuition benefit where I can take up to um, six credits uh, per semester. So basically two classes uh, for free. And all I have to do is get a C. Otherwise, they make me pay for it. So if I, like, I drop the class too late, I have to pay for it, which obviously I'm not oh, wow. going to do. So, you know, so but, you know, with the whole um, deciding to change jobs, the decision was really easy to stay with VCU because all I have is a GED. And, you know, there was really not going to there, there aren't a lot of good paying options for GEDs, unfortunately, because you're getting so many people coming out of college and there's so few job options that people that normally would have had that would have normally turned down, a, you know, a 40 hour a week office job are willing to take it. So you're competing with people with way more like like visual paper on their wall experience than somebody with a GED that's, you know, framed and hid wherever I have it hiding. And so the big thing was like, when you work at VCU, if you apply for another position, they don't promote people. You have to literally 
compete with other people for any kind of promotion 99% of the time, unless they do the rare like inner office um, hire within option, mm-hmm. which is really hard to get around because VC wants to be competitive. They want to feel like they're getting the best people every time, not just the person that already worked here for a few years. So I decided like, okay, I need to, I want to stay with VCU and a coworker that had worked with me prior in accounts payable was working in student affairs in their finance department. It was like, I know a job that would be perfect for you. And this wasn't somebody that I knew really well. They knew me literally from work, but they knew that I had a really strong work ethic. And they also knew that I was very upfront and active when it came to like, as far as like where I stood politically, um, Mm -hmm. which definitely made me butt heads with some of my coworkers who loved to say problematic things and accounts payable and did not like being taken, you know, like having it pointed out to them. Um, right. And, you know, and, and, and in many cases, you know, it was one of those things where I just, I bit my lip cause it's like, these were people that were above me and I'm mm. not going to get, I'm, I'd rather just let them, you know, in my, in my opinion, it was easier to work in that department that was so backstabby already and just ignore mm. those people and ignore their ways because they had been, they, you know, these are people in their fifties and sixties that were not going to change. They had no interest right. in changing. They, they didn't want to admit that they possibly were wrong about certain things. Me, right. I, I love growing and thriving, and um, so I, I really needed a department that would really bring that out of me. And this uh, woman that I worked with previously in Accounts Payable was like, you should apply to work in OMSA. And I was like, what the hell is an OMSA? O-M-S-A. Hmm. Looked it up. The Office of Multicultural Student Affairs. And I was like, all right, well, this is going to be interesting. Like, let me check out the website, checked it out. And the office really focuses on serving marginalized students at VCU. And I'm like, well, I'm not a marginalized student. Like I have like the maximum amount of privilege that you could possibly have. That was the total opposite of this department. I'm like, will I be successful in this role? Like, what am I going to be able to bring to this, this role? And so in 2016, in October, 2016, I got interviewed. The, the questions were very, you know, direct. They were much more serious than probably any other job interview I'd ever done before. And one of the questions that really stuck out to me was like, what are your experiences regarding like diversity, inclusion, and and equity? And without even blinking, like I immediately said something that as I was saying, it was like, oh no, this is totally going to like sink me. And that was that like, though I may not have these identities, I've been watching people sing on stage and yell at a crowd about these, these identities that they themselves had long before they became like media catchphrases, like, you know, finding out what trans people were long before it became like, you know, like a thing that, you know, they've had made reality shows out of like, you know, just like queer folks, like, you know, all the different shades of uh, POC people, like, and having them being involved in punk rock where you can be genuinely angry and genuinely vote, like vocalize your discontent and not care about being on the radio in the process. Like, it's legitimate, like passionate feeling from the heart. And I was like, you know what? I explained that to them and, you know, said like, you know, what I just said. And immediately I was like, I got kind of like a blank stare for a second. Mm -hmm. But then I was like, they're not a blank stare of like, because they don't understand what the hell I'm saying. I think that they were more surprised at how I phrased it and how like, honestly, I phrased it. But I was still kind of worried and went home that day and was like, I don't know how I did in that interview. Like I I was definitely my true self, which is, you know, the best way to get a job, especially if you want to be there for a long time. 
And then like a couple of days later, they called me and said that, you know, I was the candidate that they all chose. And that was very like that, that really like was a good confidence builder because it was probably the first time I'd ever gone in and been such my true transparent self for an interview. Cause at a record store, you just have to say, I like this type of music, you know, give me some money, give me a discount. Right. You know, like the thing, right. that's the things you worry about at a record store and an accounts payable. Definitely. You know, there was not any concern with where anybody stood um, in regards to anything politically wise or anything like, you know, social justice wise. And I was really thrown right into the, you know, like right into the thick of things because I got hired in October 2016. A month later, Donald Trump becomes president. And I was really curious yeah. how the office was going to react because VCU takes a stance of we don't we, we can't have a stance, basically. Like we need to be there for everybody, even if we don't agree with them, which I totally mm. get. But you should still be, and you know, and it was really made clear. Like our office needs to be there to remain neutral, um, even though you know some of the people that would have negative things to say about my office were not staying neutral. Um, we right. still have to be. We have to, you know, go high when they go low. I hate, I hate right. that phrase, but it works really well for this situation. And so, what does my office do the next day? We literally shut down the office, did not do any work, and just had our doors open. We were ordering pizza donuts from Krispy Kreme all day and just letting students come in and grieve and express Aww. their worry and not be devalued. And, you know, having my coworkers like, you know, take students that were freaking the F out for very valid reasons into their office so they could talk privately because they were genuinely scared. You know, having students that were undocumented, having students that were DACA students, having students whose parents were undocumented. And they're like, are my parents, I'm over 18, are my parents just going to get sent home and I'm going to be stuck here by myself? Like all these concerns that someone that, you know, looks like me with the identities that I have will never, ever have to worry about in my lifetime. But yeah. those students would come in and they would not, they didn't look at me like, Hey, what are you doing here? You're, you know, you look like the same people that are out here, you know, trying to get me kicked out of the country. Instead, they were like, I really need help. And having them be so empowered for such an awful reason to, you know, need to talk to somebody and having people leaving my office, like less upset than when they walked in at the end of the day, I was like, this is like the coolest office ever. Like, this is like the best situation ever for these students. And I'm so glad that so many students knew where we were. I feel really bad for the students that didn't, that were also, you know, crying in their uh, uh, dorm rooms or um, residence hall. Sorry. And, you know, the funny thing was during that day, the day after the uh, election results came in, when my office shut down, I actually had to stop by my old office to drop off some paperwork. And I went in there and you would have thought an election hadn't even happened, even though so many of the people that I work with were POC folks that very likely were going to have things pertaining to them affecting them. They right. were just pretending like it was business as usual. And I was so glad that I'd gotten out of there when I did, because it would have been so hard to go to work that day. And not right. be like, why aren't you all pissed off? Why aren't you all worried? Like, I'm over here with, like, a truckload of privilege, and I'm worried for you more than you're worried for yourself. And right. it was very, very um, – it was a great reminder of why I left, and I felt really good having left. And I knew at that point that this was the place where I really wanted to be. And over time, you know, we've had, um, you know, lots of different things happening in the news – um, some that weren't as newsworthy nationally that, you know, were really newsworthy locally. And my office steps up and knows where the line is. They know how to spit across it. 
but they mm-hmm. still know how to keep our funding coming in, keep, you know, the, the things going in so we can keep being there for the students. Mm-hmm. And, you know, over, t- over, you know, the past, it'll be six years that I've been there as of this October, and it has never been the same day twice. Unlike how I was saying with my previous position on accounts payable, where it was literally every day was the same routine every day. And, you know, there have been some really hard days, but, you know, especially with the team that I have now, like I work with people that are so passionate about it. And yes, they get paid, but they don't do it for the paycheck. Like they genuinely love this work because if you love this work, you're going to quickly realize it's an underpaid and undervalued work. Um, And um, I'm really glad that, you know, I work with, I have a director who values self-care and, you know, encourages me to take days off besides just when I need like a doctor's appointment or a dentist appointment or an eye doctor visit. I mean, I can't say enough for how much I love working for this office. If you had told me when I was 25, like, hey, in, you know, 25 years, you're going to be working in an office, I would have laughed at you. But it's because I just, my idea of what an office, working in an office meant, I felt like it was this place that just drains you and just takes your, you know, everything about you that's you and just like, like just peels it away. And, and, you know, that's what life was like for 11 years in accounts payable, but it's not been like that for the last six years. And I'm so grateful that I made that change. Going back to like working at OMSA, like we are there for the students. We're not there for our bosses. Like the students are really our bosses and we keep that in mind. Let's talk about that for a minute. So like, what exactly does the office do? Because you said after the Trump election, um, y'all had students coming in there looking for support. Like what, what is the job of this office? The job of this office is to provide support for minoritized and marginalized students so that they don't fall through the cracks and they tend to be the first to drop out. Um, Mm. They tend to be the first to like not reach out for help, um, especially when they are about to like, you know, fail. Like, I mean, an office like mine is there to not only support, but also to educate. Like we do programming across the board for all sorts of identities, you know, and we're constantly like working. We don't, we don't feel like we're experts. Like nobody in, nobody that does diversity and inclusion and equity work is an expert because it's all, those words are always changing and it's all also changes heavily. Like it can even change month to month on who sometimes really needs that extra bit of support. Like a good example, you know, when COVID happened, a lot of anti-Asian hate crimes started happening and we had Asian students coming to us like, can the office speak on this? Because, you know, mm-hmm. st- like students, not to say students won't listen to students, but students like to know that there are people outside of college that are not only listening, but willing to uh, like stand up for them. And we did a lot of very, I don't mean depressing in a bad way, but depressing because we were so honest about it programming mm-hmm. that like, Really, you know, it, I, I, I joke that working in my office is like getting paid to learn, but it is. It's like a classroom that I'm in 40 hours a week because every week I learn something new. And, and it's because I work with people that are so passionate about what they're doing, but they don't treat it like they don't gatekeep it. Um, they really like they, they want to share their experiences and their knowledge. And I mean, I'm way older than everybody in my office, including my boss. And I'm the only person that's been in this office for more than two years because we have had a high turnover rate because, one, this work will burn you out. 
but also mm-hmm. two other universities find out what we're doing and they scoop up some of our people. With our office, what we do is we try to be there to help people, uh, help the students on their journey to get to graduation and get more out of it than just some classroom time. Mm-hmm. We've had really amazing guest speakers come through that either our office put together the program or we collaborated with another department. We've had like Angela Davis, which, you know, shaking hands with Angela Davis is something I never thought I would be able to do. This was just something that, you know, this is a person I saw in documentaries and here she is standing in my office doing a private Q&A after her main event at VCU. She came over to our office and did a private event for 30 students who were just like jaws on the floor the whole time. Like that was really cool. Like I was like, wait, I'm getting paid to like hang out with Angela Davis for, you know, a couple hours. Like it was, it was really amazing. And, you know, we've had people, we had somebody from the show Orange is the New Black come in and speak about like her, like Latin experience growing up and, you know, the trials and tribulations that she went to, to get to the point where she's at, where she's a very successful actress. You know, we've also had like various like music artists come through before I was there. We had, um, I can't remember his real name, but he plays the chicken guy on Breaking Bad. Um, okay. Uh, Guillermo, gosh, I can remember his name. I'm totally butchering his name, but yeah, he, uh, he did an event with us. Uh, Spike Lee did an event with us, which I didn't even know about. And it was when I was working at VCU. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, we've had a lot of really amazing people come through every December and May we do, um, graduation ceremonies for specific identities because, you know, you get your like, you know, cookie cutter, generic, uh, commencement ceremony, where you're rushed up, your name gets said, you're rushed off the stage. That's what everybody gets. The thing is for the students that are marginalized that have, you know, have had, you know, they're, some of them are like uh, first generation uh, college graduates, things like that. Mm-hmm. Like we want to go the extra mile to help them. So we set up um, a donning of the Kente ceremony, which is for black and African-American identifying students, the uh, Latin achievement ceremony, which is for uh, Latino and Latina identifying students. We also have a, a lavender uh, graduation ceremony for those who identify as LGBTQIA. And this year was the first time we did a, um, a, a PETA ceremony, which is Asian Pacific Islander Desi American ceremony. We've had for years students coming to us and being like, well, what about, what about like us? What about, you know, like we don't have, we, we want to be recognized as well. And it was very hard because we really wanted to do it right. It's really easy to do a ceremony, but it's so much easier to screw it up than it is to do it right. Because you're talking, especially with a PETA, where you're talking about like there are so many parts of the world that fall under the Asian Pacific Islander, Desi, and they all have very different traditions. So it's like, how are you going to make like a catch all and not screw something up? So you know, right. it had been a couple of years in the works. We finally did one this year. It went really, really well. The students really appreciate it. Turnout was, you know, good, especially for a first time ceremony where people didn't know what to expect. And like the Donning of the Kente ceremony we had to have at the Richmond Convention Center because it has grown so big. And that makes us so happy, like seeing these students, like, you know, having their parents there and giving them a ceremony that is culturally specific to them rather than a same ceremony for everybody commencement ceremony um you know all the way down to like the stoles are very specific like the serapes are very specific uh the, mm-hmm. the lavender cords which are like rainbow cords for the lgbtqi students and having people that you know 
that have those same identities being the guest speakers, like showing people that you can like, when you get out of college, like you don't have to forget about college. You can come back and like be a guest speaker at these things and show people like, you know, what you've done with that really expensive piece of paper on your wall. But besides that, every month throughout the school year, through both semesters, we have Latin Heritage Month. We have LGBTQIA uh, History Month. We have Indigenous Peoples Heritage Month. We have Black History Month. We have Women's History Month. And we have uh, AAPI, Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And, you know, we're even looking at doing other ones as well, because the students have come to us and said, like, that's great you're doing this, but can you do this? We also don't want just the people with those identities to come to these events because we want it to be educational for everybody. Like, right. you know, having white folks at the Angela Davis event can, like, non-POC people come. Of course. Like, the only thing we try to keep in mind with that and let people know is don't go there and like, ask a bunch of questions you could have asked Google for. Because sometimes with um, – we do an event called Queer Coffee Hour. Like it's about once a month that we do it, where you know, LGBTQIA students can gather, talk about the things that matter. Every once in a while, we would have straight folks come in, and then they would just basically just be just grilling, like, "Well, when did you know you were gay? When was this? When was that?" And it's like it it makes it so the folks that are in the room that do have these identities aren't really that comfortable talking around a bunch of people that are just going to ask them a bunch of like, unfortunately, Very like general and ignorant yeah, questions. And, and it, sometimes very, very ignorant, sometimes very hurtful, and they don't realize how hurtful they're being in a space that is supposed to be specifically for these folks to get, like, to be in an office with a door shut away mm -hmm. from all of these questions they already get asked out there. So it's, um, but, you know, we, we're not going to be like, hey, you know, straight folks, because in that case, I would have to leave too. Hey, straight folks, you can't be in this office during this time. No, just like, don't take up too much space. Like, think about what you say before you say it. And as one of my former assistant directors once said, listen more, talk less. And, you know, and initially I was like, well, what are you saying? I talk too much? Yes. You know? <laughs> and, and, and just knowing when you're taking up too much space is something that folks really should do better about learning about because to have people come in and make people not want to come back the following week. That's not why we do it. Like we want, we want people to feel like our office is a space for everyone, whether you have that identity or not, but also it's a smarter space than just hanging out in the commons. It's a smarter space than just hanging out at Cabell. Um, right. Because you're going to get more out of uh, our space than you would at most of those other places. So um, with, with doing what I do, it's very draining, even though I don't have those identities because I you can't help but like, be empathetic to so much that like you're not going to see on the outside world when it's literally right there 40 hours a week in front of you. And I feel like everybody should work in a diversity office for like a month just to see how much behind the scenes stuff goes on, because you have to be really you have to think of both sides of every situation when you're planning programming, because if mm -hmm. you don't, the students will eat you alive. And it's not that the students are waiting around to jump on us, but the students really want us to do better when they say, mm. see us not doing doing things exactly how they want. Even if they might may not have the perfect definition, they may not mm. even be able to explain it. They are more than happy to call us out. 
which we appreciate because it means we won't make that mistake next time. Because the last thing we want, like I said, the last thing we want to do is somebody come to our office and go, I'm not coming here anymore because I felt alienated or this or that, which that can happen anywhere in the campus. We just work really hard to make everybody that walks through our door feel validated and welcome and appreciated for doing so. It takes a lot of effort to do that the same way it takes, not same way, but similar way. It takes a lot of effort to reach out to counseling services at VCU and look for help. Like it's, these are very uncomfortable times, especially now with people. And I'd love working for an office that we do our best to let people know where we're at so that they know that they have a place to go. That brings me to a point I wanted to ask you, because you are, you're getting ready to turn 51. Yeah, I, I turned 51 in October. There was this tendency of people when they got older to become more conservative, to become more unaccepting, to become, you know, they kind of, I, I think it kind of stems from like, you know, they kind of lock into their like, traditionally, you know, their family or their suburban life, you know, this is the way I came up around this kind of thing. And then they kind of just get scared of anything that might challenge their everyday day to day. And you, I mean, just, just because of like being in, in the punk rock and, and, and the hardcore and being in a fringe kind of culture, like we, we, we kind of don't, exi- you know, age that same way, but you've taken this job at this age where, um, you know, people tend to kind of be pretty locked into what they already believe. Um, and that was oh, one of the amazing things I saw when I worked at VCU is I realized, because uh, I worked there briefly, and I realized I was around these people that were in their 60s and their 70s, but their minds were, you know, like a 20-year-old in terms of their, their interest in learning new things. And I realized it was because they were always just learning, you know. But so with that happening, but then also during this time where things have become so polarized, and so like regressively um, anti every like thing that is different from like white and Christian and, you know, this, this, you know, Trumpian fucking bullshit. How has working here been when, you know, I know there has to be people on your Facebook feed or old acquaintances, things like this that are getting, you know, that are getting enraged by the rights, uh, you know, enrageometer to, um, you know, question transness as, it's, as a, you know, just the same way that they do with Antifa, like it's some kind of conspiracy to destroy the fabric of America. How has that experience been trying to, you know, living in this world, but, but having these actual um, insights and, and uh, access to, you know, seeing um, what marginalized folks uh, and, and minoritized folks are doing and dealing with in these times. How has that changed you? Um, I think the, the thing that my, that my friends that, that, you know, I've known, you know, 20, 30 plus years probably hate that I work at this office so much, not because I work there, but because I have, I have so much ammunition of actual mm-hmm. facts to fire back at them when they start throwing <laughs> literally fake news at me and I start right. correcting them and they hate it. They hate it. And, and I don't do it to make them feel shitty. I feel like I'm, tr- I'm struggling to kind of yank them onto the right side of history because right now they're not. 
And right. it's one of those things where it's like, I have so much positive ammo just locked and loaded at all times that some of my friends just know not to engage with me like that. And the ones that have made that mistake, I've, you know, there was someone that I'm, that I've known for over 30 years. And I really like over the past, like two or three years, no coincidence during Trump time, very much started to show a side of them that I kind of suspected maybe was there, but they felt Mm -hmm. so empowered to really show it off and let their just like their like nutty right wing side of them like fly. But I didn't cower behind the, Oh, that's just blah, 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 being blah, blah, blah. Like, like that, that excuse like allows people to have a good cop out. I read a quote recently that, you know, really like struck with me and I hate that I can't find it handily. So I'm going to totally misquote them, but I'm going to get the wording as close to right as possible. When it comes to like, being complacent about racism, Mm -hmm. you're being racist. And unless you're like really taking a stand against racism, you're racist. You can't just throw up your hands and go, I can't do anything about it. When it's something as simple as a discussion with people, like you can always vent your views. And if you feel like you're being quieted up or whatever, or expected to just stay quiet, and that means they fear what you have to say. And it also means that that's the, dominant culture you know i mean like yeah. the thing the, the thing that's important in that is like people have a hard time i think understanding their own agency in this like just most americans but like politics is nothing more than the intersection of power and people you know so like if you like people and you don't want them to get crushed by things then you kind of got to be, I don't know, somewhat aware of this stuff. And when Trump was in power, it wasn't so much the things he was doing, but it was also the validation of having some much, much the same way that your office provides legitimacy to, um, you know, someone that might feel out of uh, place because of, their their ethnicity or their sexual orientation or their gender um there's a there's a legitimacy that knowing that there is a place for them gives them much in that same way to power trump was doing that for nazi skinheads for fucking (laughs) like you know oh totally every kind of thing and so you know a lot of these folks were in the woodwork for years and years and years and years, you know, and oh, they, they and, were tucked and, away in the shadows and they did not feel they, they didn't have anybody validating them on a presidential level. Like, holy crap, that guy came out and said something in such like a caveman, like childish, like fourth grader level right. where everybody can relate to it. Of course, they're going to jump on it and they're going to go, well, that guy said it. So it's OK if I say it, too. And it's like that's such a problem because. Just because you say something, just because you're in like a position of power, doesn't make it right. Like you, could, I could say all day, the sky's purple. The sky's not purple. And if I were to have that influence, have that ability to have that much of an audience, where if I say it three or four times, there's going to be some people that are going to look up and go, "It is kind of purple, actually." And there's other people that have always felt like the sky's purple, and here's this guy saying it that if he's saying it. And he's the president. It mu- I must be. I, I've been right this whole time. And it's like that's such a problem to me because, you know, 
they they say and do these things that are so hurtful to others and then play dumb. Like you cannot mm-hmm. play dumb about racism. Like you cannot put Black Lives Matter in the same category as like hardcore Nazis. Because let me tell you, Black Lives Matter haven't killed people. They have right. not ran people over with cars. Like when they got mad, they were at a you know protesting protesters in Charlottesville. Like it it it, it the one thing that I think is really important about my job is mm-hmm. to stay passionate and to not shut up. Because the second you lose that passion and or shut up, then they've won. It's like the biggest problem is so many people give things a pass because they are too afraid of upsetting people. I'm sorry. Like you can't be that passive in life, especially not as you get older, because you have years and years and years of experience to learn from. And with me, teenage me was not exactly in line with how I am now. Like I believed a lot of Republican lies and, and my early teens. Why? Because I didn't have a, like the internet to research things myself. Like I believed what I was told and right. You know, it's like my my opinions about a lot of things changed like midway through my teens, especially in my early 20s, especially going to shows as much, especially engaging with people even more so that did not like look like me, but that had these great things to say that though they didn't affect me, they affected me because they affected the people I cared about. There's a corny, corny meme that said, like, you know, we can disagree about pineapple and pizza, but we can't disagree on racism. Yeah. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people that will find ways to not talk about racism and will put more of their effort to talk about the importance or not of pe- uh, pineapple on pizza. And it's an office like mine that is not like we don't we don't even care about the pineapple on the pizza. We want to engage with people and educate them. We're not going to like yell at people when they get things wrong. Like that's probably I think the biggest fear that people have is like, well, I, uh, I misgendered that person. They're going to hate me forever. No. But the next time you see them, you better not do it again because then you're showing that you do not care about this person enough to remember something that really matters to them. I will forget people's – their birthdays quicker than I will forget misgendering them. Right. And that's the important thing is a lot of people put importance on remembering birthdays more than – well, it's just so confusing. It's like, well, if somebody takes the time to stop you and educate you – that means they care about you enough to speak with you and not not want they don't want you to remain ignorant if they can help you be better next time. My thing is be better next time. I've definitely made my own mistakes in my office and I've definitely embarrassed myself on more than one occasion. But you know what I do? I remember it and I remember how I felt and I remember how like embarrassed and like hurt that I felt that I hurt somebody else to not do it again. So you recently had your fourth kid. Um, yeah, four, uh, well, four years ago, but recently when you're 51, four years is definitely right. recently. Well, 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 yeah, I mean, recently in that, it's it's still a small child. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, and honestly, like, those first, like, two or three years blow by anyway. So, um, yeah. Like, what – so, okay, so you, how old were you when you first had your, your, your first uh, son? I was, let's see, he's turning 20 next February, which is so scary to say. So I was, I had just turned 32. And yeah, it's really wild to like look back and, you know, it's like, I mean, he's almost taller than me now. And my, you know, my next son is turning 17 
in September. I keep thinking we're in August already. Um, and then my next son, he's turning 15 next February. Uh-huh. And now I got a soon to be four year old. And granted, you know, there was like, I mean, I definitely, there was a fair amount of years that after my divorce, before I remarried, but yeah, I'm, so I'm experiencing and be, and having the mental free time to mm-hmm. enjoy this process in ways that I didn't realize that I missed out on. Like the batteries were just drained too much to have the energy to really notice a lot of the awesome things that come with parenthood. It was that when I was home, I was so exhausted that I was just missing out on a lot of these firsts. But it's also making me realize that I did see a lot of things that at the time I may not have noticed were really important, but I'm really seeing the importance of now because I'm seeing them for a fourth time while there's some things that I'm literally seeing for the first time. What would be like a specific example of something that you Um, are talking about? It's like so many of these things just kind of happen and then they just pass through my brain. But I think it's more just the the day-to-day routines of – like not ha- having not had a babysitter for mm-hmm. my first three kids because my first wife was a stay-at-home mom, mm-hmm. like taking my kid to daycare every day and feeling bad when I leave because my right. kid is bummed out that I'm leaving. It w- and, you know, it was, you know, it's not that like my first three kids didn't, weren't sad when I left, but they knew I would be coming home every day versus this kid who I'm leaving with at first, you know, before they got used to this babysitter, a stranger and then leaving, and at the end of the day, I come back and just trying to be more intentional about giving more of myself to all my kids is mm-hmm. something that I wasn't really conscious of when they were younger because mm-hmm. I did have so many – like I was juggling like all these flaming chainsaws basically. And I've just let some of those flaming chainsaws go, and a lot of mm-hmm. that is because of self-care. A lot of that mm-hmm. is because you know actual like – medical diagnoses that now have me on medication that helped me stay balanced in a way where I was so ill-prepared for parenthood that mm-hmm. like, I'm, I'm, I'm just like, you know, as with like my political beliefs and like things like that, I'm getting better through these experiences. I'm just really seeing them a lot differently as a 50 year old than I did as a 35 year old. Well, and, and the challenges are still there. But the right. challenges are just I'm able to manage them better because I have had practice too. Like some people that are just like, you know, on their first kid, they're like, I'm freaking lost. I feel like mm-hmm. I'm a terrible parent. But the thing is, they're still being present and there. So you're not really a bad parent. You're just, you don't, nobody has a handbook. There's no perfect handbook. Right. Um, that you're that says, like, well, when this happens, do this. When this happens, do this. Like, I mean, my dad wasn't in my life much after I was two, and he was hardly even involved in it at all, like right. beyond that. So it's like I don't really know what it's like, what being a dad, good dad looks like. I know what being a dad looks like, but I don't know that I'm being good, like a good dad all the time. And sometimes I kind of kick myself. People are like, no, you realize, like, you, you're kind of operating with no manual. So, like, right. you're not only doing a good job, but you're doing really well for a guy with no manual that you don't have, like – this happened when I was little, so I'm doing this now. Like, I don't have a lot of those experiences in regarding, like, father, because my mom was basically my dad and my mom at the same time, while also working full-time and making it look real easy, which I give my mom 
a lot of crap for of like, you realize how easy you made it look <laughs> like looking back and because she didn't want to roll her things onto me, which I almost kind of wish she had because I was a little ill prepared <laughs> for exactly what parenthood would be. But um, my, having this fourth kid has actually been really beneficial to my first three kids because there's I'm giving them even more appreciation for what like the people that they've become when I was mm. I was doing good by them with not even realizing it, where I'm doing things even more intentionally now. Well, and, and I wanted to kind of bring this up, and I don't know if you're comfortable talking about it, but, you know, like, for a little while there, like, you know, you're talking about learning these boundaries and learning self-care. Like, I, I've known you for, for a good bit now, like, probably, like, tw- 20. Almost 25 years. At some point, you realized you had anxiety. And yeah. Like you, you were functioning with anxiety, I think, for many years and not even realizing, I think, that you had it. And, and yeah. I, the reason I'm bringing this up is because I, I had almost the exact same thing happen to me. I was in a group therapy one time and some girl was describing anxiety. And I was like, oh, my God, I feel like that all the time. Like I had no fucking idea, you know. <laughs> I was just like, I thought that's just how I feel. Um, and so r- realizing that and – becoming aware of that, um, how was that process, how has that changed your life? Um, it means I look much bigger picture with things and I don't personalize things because mm-hmm. a lot of things, like there would be situations that I look back on and like before I stopped drinking, before I stopped doing drugs, that like I initially, like in my like early 30s especially, I look back on those times with a lot of embarrassment because of mm. a lot of the choices that I made, but then, you know, getting into my like forties and actually, you know, getting diagnosed with depression, getting diagnosed with like anxiety, it explained how I reacted so much better to me that it's not that mm. I like let go of the guilt of the entire situation. And it's not that I let myself off the hook. It helped me better understand it so that when those things happen now, that I don't rely solely on the medication to get me through. I look at like anything, like you fall off a bike, you get back on the bike and you try to keep biking. You may fall off again, but you try to fall off less. Like I, I, I try to learn from the, some of the mistakes I made pre the me, pre medicated version of me, pre therapist version of me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I compare and contrast how I'm reacting to those things. And it's, and it feels very good for my self-confidence to be just mm-hmm. doing things better. Like, do I wish I could go back and, you know, undo some of those things? Yes. But I almost feel like I needed those mistakes to appreciate the, the way that I've progressed beyond them. So, yeah, I mean, you with, can't learn without being wrong. Like, like, yeah, like, well, like it's, and it, it's kind of a hollow lesson if it doesn't hurt. Yeah, exactly. Like I really had to hit rock bottom through so much stuff all at the same time between like, Recognize my depression, recognize my anxiety, having my marriage end and Mm -hmm. hitting those different types of bottoms and Mm -hmm. realizing like I could go or I could go about like moving forward in two ways. I could just sit here, be miserable, mad at the world, blame everybody for my, you know, how this is all, all ended up. Or I can move forward, take what I've learned, take those situations and how I reacted and try to react better next time. Am I perfect? far from it but i'm a much better person now because of medication because of therapy 
by just talking to people. Like that was probably the biggest thing that I, the hardest time I had, especially like during my uh, divorce was opening up to people about things besides that, because there were so Mm -hmm. many things that were really like interconnected to my divorce that then kind of were brought to the surface that I had never really addressed before. And Mm -hmm. it was one thing to get comfortable talking to friends. It was very difficult talking to friends about things that were really, that made me feel very vulnerable, but Mm -hmm. how good they felt after I let them go, after I peeled those layers back, it made me, it made it so that I got even better therapy because here's this person that doesn't know me, doesn't know my backstory. I can be a hundred percent truthful with, and they're going to be a hundred percent truthful with me back versus when you tell a friend that you made a mistake, you feel the embarrassment, you feel the regret, you worry mm-hmm. that, you know, like that you're being judged. My therapist doesn't judge me. Like I pay somebody, you know, at this point I go about once a month and, you know, we have a great discussion. She tells me, you know, exactly what she thinks, but it's at the end of the day, she doesn't worry that, you know, she's made me mad. Like if like she says something hurtful, I can speak up, but she also yeah. has never said anything hurtful. Like she is everything that she does is to make me into a more improved version of uh, than I was when I first walked into her office. And a lot of friends need to be like that. They need to not be so judgmental because then friends won't be afraid to come out to them. They won't be afraid to admit, you know, very large mistakes mm-hmm. because they, they won't worry about that being judged. And it's like, if anything, you should be judged less by your friends than you should be by a therapist. But unfortunately we live in a world where, you know, people are really afraid to talk about things. I mean, I made some of my friendships that I had so much tighter during my divorce mm-hmm. because I had so much stuff on my mind that going to a therapist wasn't enough. Mm -hmm. And, you know, but the biggest thing was if I don't open up, I'm not going to get better. I'm going to be stuck at rock bottom forever. And I'm going to be a miserable person. You know, one of my friends back then was like, man, you haven't even like thought about drinking to like, you know, deal with how like, you know, unhappy you are or whatever. And I'm like, I don't want my kids to see me like that. Like I was a terrible person when I drank, I wasn't a terrible person to, I was more of a terrible person to myself because mm-hmm. I really was just like letting myself down and also mm-hmm. letting myself off the hook for a lot of bad behavior. I was like, I would never want my kids to see any of that. Plus they were getting to be at an age where this was like, you know, 10 over 10 years ago where they were, you know, you know, old enough to really see it. And do right. I really want them to see that? And unfortunately a lot of parents, when they go through, you know, divorces or whatever, where like a lot of stuff gets seen by their kids, they don't realize it's going to stick with them for life. And I would never yeah. want my kids to, 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 to see, like, I mean, my, my kids don't even know that I ever drank at this point. Like when they get a little bit older, I'll probably talk to them about it. But at this point, I don't want to tell any of my stories because I have to tell them with a bit of a, a spin of a laugh at the end. I don't want to mm-hmm. ever devalue the severity of the negative impact by just focusing on the haha, this is the funny part of the story. But being a parent is really important to me. And the best version of me that I can be is not drinking, not doing drugs, like not smoking. Those three things make me a better parent. Do they make every person a better parent? No. Like people say like, well, Hitler was a vegetarian. Does not make him a better person. (laughs) (laughs) Like it, it doesn't let like everything off the hook. 
I feel so accountable for what I do now. It makes me really think deeply about my actions and how they not only will affect me, but how they will affect my kids in the long run, that it has helped me not make mistakes that I probably would have made in my 20s. You know, what a gift that you've given your kids by choosing to actually do the hard thing. And, you know, like you said, like after that divorce, like sitting there and you had that choice of like, you can sit there and blame everybody or you could fucking focus on this stuff and figure out like what's going on. Like, how can I get through this? How can I get better? Like what a gift that you chose that route, you know? Cause I mean, there are parents that don't. And the other thing you just said is like feeling accountable. You know, I've noticed this in myself. The second you have a kid, if you're like cognizant of the reality of the situation, you now have this like accountability to your child yeah and that is something that you know when I was 20 in my 20s and my 30s I mean I didn't have a kid until mid-30s but before being a parent you know I could slag off my accountability to myself you know I could just make some excuse and whatever but it's like when you have to explain it to a little mind you know (laughs) that like looks up to you and like whatever or like values you in some realm it's a lot harder to kind of oh yeah, you know, go over bad things and, and not feel them as so bad. I didn't know I had half-sisters till I was nine. And that was because oh, wow. my dad had many, had many escapades before I came along with many mm-hmm. different women. And he took – my dad, the joke I always make, and it's a horrible joke, but it, I can say it because it pertains to me directly as well, is my dad loved making kids. He didn't like taking care of kids. And he severely damaged four people besides the, the women in his life, my mom included, besides mm-hmm. the, the women that he had these kids with, he severely messed these kids up. Like mm-hmm. my all, like all three of my sisters from what I've gathered, cause I, don't, I haven't talked to them in decades, but you know, just kind of finding them on the internet randomly. They all basically married versions of men that look like my dad. And oh, wow. I don't find that a coincidence. And it's like, I, I, I look at how, like, my dad treated people. Mm-hmm. And the thing I always say is when I come to an important crossroads in life, there's, and there's like a decision to go left or a decision to go right. I think, what would my dad do? And I do the opposite. <laughs> and I've had a really, I've had a, and I'm dead serious. I've had a really good track record because of that, because I, I look at so many of the mistakes he made and I learned from his, him, his mistakes without me having to make those same mistakes and then copping out later of like, oh, well, I didn't know, and blah, 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 blah. Like, that's not good enough for me. Like, I set a standard for myself that I want my kids to see and set for right. themselves. And as long as it's realistic, it's not harmful. Because, like, I am my own greatest critic. Like, I, I, you know, I really care what my wife thinks of me. And I really care what my uh, kids think of me. And I really care what my friends think of me because they have expectations of who I am mm-hmm. where I'm not, you're not going to have to worry about me running off and becoming a Trump 2024 guy because you've right. known me long enough to know that that change would not happen in me in the same way that if like all of a sudden you saw me like at a bar drinking at 51 yeah. years old, you would be worried, not that I was drinking, but that I was drinking. Well, and I think and, that also, you know, that, that cuts in a couple of ways because like, if I saw that, if I saw you doing that, 
Number one, I'd know something was wrong with you. <laughs> yes, there, there have, all those things two, have legs. Those decisions have legs. And and number two, I would fucking for sure be really worried about you and say something to you like very seriously. And I think that speaks, you know, a lot of people don't have that. Like a lot of people have friends that if they did something like that, their friends might feel alienated. Their friends might be like, what the fuck? But they won't even say anything. They'll just kind of like, like they can't really trust them to be honest almost, you know? And like, I think that also speaks to you because like, I know I'm not your only friend like that. I know all your friends would be like, Dave, we need to have a talk. Why are you, (laughs) you know, like, because. Oh, on different levels. Definitely. Even my friends that drink would still be like, yo, what the hell? Yeah. You know? And like, I think that just also really kind of speaks to, um, you know, like you've also surrounded yourself with a culture of people that, you know, not, not only do you demand more for yourself, but the folks around you demand, demand that same level from you, you know? And, And it's not in like a shitty way, but it's in like a really good, like kind of empowering way, you know? It's part of what makes me me. I don't, and, and and it's not that I like it's not that I don't drink because I don't want to disappoint my friends. I don't want to disappoint myself. Mm-hmm. Then see that disappointment in me of myself, where it's like I know the best version of me doesn't drink. I know lots of people that drink, and they're awesome people. Like I know lots of people that are straight edge, and they're awesome people. I think it might have been Jay Orr that once said to me like, like I don't really care if somebody's straight edge or not because like an asshole can be an asshole whether they're straight edge or not. And it's like, I love that I have friends that I've known since their teens and I've watched them grow into, you know, various levels of, you know, education, various levels of jobs, various levels of parenthood. And the best thing is like, I've watched like most of them evolve for the betterment of themselves and also not looking for a pat on the back in the process. Like, like I see, like, not to just bring up Jay Oregon, but it's like, I see Jay or every couple of years. Like I get so excited to see him. He gets so excited mm-hmm. to see me because it's like we have this history together, even though it's not this like daily interaction. Like my best friend lives over a hundred miles away and, you know, I stay in, you know, really steady contact with him, but you know, we've, we're definitely polar opposites. Like we are the yin and the yang of each other in so many ways. But the one thing we both have in common, we're both parents and it gives right. us such a neat bonding thing that even though we mm-hmm. are, you know, close in age, but definitely very different with our opinions on a lot of things at the end of the day. Like we know what's important. We know the, the people that we've grown into and we're both stoked for each other. Like we don't look at each other like, Oh man, like there's no jealousy between us. And I feel like punk definitely helped kind of lay that groundwork for like, we all appreciate when we all take steps up, not being jealous or like envious or whatever, like, we're we're right. all really rooting for each other, and I feel like a lot of other subcultures could really learn a lot from that because so many other subcultures are all about me, 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 not yeah. us, 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 us. And you know, it goes back to the, when I bought Victim and Pain. Like one of the songs that stuck with me was "United and Strong," and I'm reading the lyrics, and I'm like, man, this is like a song for everybody. Like, and there's so right. little music when you know working in a record store. There's so little music that had that real substance to it. That it's like, mm-hmm. I'm so glad I stumbled into what I stumbled into 
by going to the import section at Waxy Maxis because that's where they stuck all the records, even though it wasn't an import, and picking up that <laughs> record, like, like, and just being like, man, I'm looking at the cover, it's just a plain black cover with white lettering, just says Agnostic Front, Victim of Pain. I turn around the back and I'm reading these song titles and I'm like, man, this like this record has some substance to it. And I took it home and just like, you know, reading the lyrics and all that stuff. Like that's, I mean, there isn't a lot of music where people will be like, Oh man, I remember this point. It's like over 35 years ago, 35 years ago, buying this record and, you know, and it still stuck with me to this day, but punk does have that impact and it impacts my work. Like, I mean, it helped get me my job. Like I said, like one of the questions I literally answered completely relating it to punk rock and the importance mm-hmm. of what punk rock has shown me. Like, if I hadn't answered that question that way, I can honestly say I don't think I would have gotten a job. Like, I think that was kind of like part of the the what sold them that like this is a guy that's going to be an asset to our office. And they, little did they know I would be the only person that would still be there more than two years. Well, you know, it's also you know you answered that question, you answered it that way. Because, I mean, because so, there's I think there's other folks that would have felt, you know, they could have answered that question the same way, but they they might not have. They might not have said it. And and yeah. the, the fact that you did shows kind of like a confidence or an acceptance of yourself, you know, that that is, that is really cool. Well, thank you so well, much. Awesome. Um, cool. Thank you so much, Gary. Right. I, I love being thank your you. first one and your 50th one. Yeah. <laughs> I'll see you at number 100. Right. <laughs> All right. All right, man. We're Talk to you later. Take care. Bye-bye. Right, bye. And that concludes my interview with Dave Brown. I'd like to thank Dave for taking the time to do this very special episode with me. You can find more episodes at our website, variousthingspodcast.com, as well as on all podcast streaming services. This has been Various Things. Thanks for listening.